WHMP. Welcome to Talk for Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show the representative from the 5th Hamden District, Patricia Duffy. Pat Duffy was, I think a lot of our listeners know, the uh, first in command in the office of Representative uh, Aaron Vega for many years. Uh, she has a long history of political activism. And when Aaron Vega decided to not run for re-election in 2020, Pat Duffy ran for the seat that he had held for those many years and was elected. She sits on the House Ways and Means Committee, and it is a pleasure to have her back on the show. Representative Duffy, I really want to ask you about what are your priorities in this legislative session. There are three bills, I believe, that are uh, that you are sponsoring that are having hearings this week, which is, of course, a big step in the legislative process. Before we get to them and other bills that are on your website as your most popular bills, which I think uh, are a fascinating array, and I want to talk to you about them, you represent the 5th Hamden District, what I used to call, and I think correctly, as the Holyoke District, but now the 5th Hamden District, because of redistricting, is not just Holyoke. You include, well, some voters from elsewhere. Tell us about that, and then we're going to get to the bills themselves. That is correct. I now am proud to also represent um, Ward 3B in, uh, in Chicopee. <laughs> so one lovely, largely residential ward. In, ch uh, in uh, Chicopee. Precinct. Sorry. One Not precinct. It's one precinct. One precinct. Half a ward in Chicopee. Because I take it that the number of voters who are represented by each representative has to be equal. Is that right? Is that what, what? That is exactly right. So uh, the the population of the entire state uh, rose. So the number of constituents we each need to represent rose. And uh, as many of us have talked about here in Western Mass, you know, some of our, our population is not keeping up with the rest of the state. So even I think the population of Holyoke's held pretty steady over the 10 years, but um, I needed to get up closer to 45,000. So, uh, so I have been gifted a fantastic precinct in Chicopee, and I am now a proud member of the Holyoke, uh, the Chicopee delegation. I am the Holyoke delegation, <laughs> myself and Senator Vilas. Yeah, but uh, I am now a member of the Chicopee delegation, a wonderful group of people. Let's talk about some of the legislation that you are working on. I, I know you have hearings coming up on three bills that you are sponsoring. Yeah. Let's start there, and then I want to get to some of your most popular bills as well, because cool. I'm particularly interested in uh, some of them, which I don't know much about, but they're fascinating titles, an act reducing exclusionary uh, discipline or reducing exclusionary discipline for uh, dress code violations for grooming and dress code violations, an act protecting the rights of older adults and people with disabilities, an act modernizing firearms law, which I really want to know about. Let's start. Oh, so that's stuff that I've co-sponsored. Um, yeah, yes, and I'm, ha yes, we should definitely talk about those. Um, uh, but actually, today, I have three bills being heard. Well, let's hear about and, those. Yeah, and through the magic of um, the, that we now have a 
remote access to hearing committee hearings, which is a huge step forward. I mean, we in Western Mass know how hard it is to drive in, talk for three minutes, and then drive back out. So the, I can like leap around into commit different committee rooms. Uh, so and we should uh, we should point out that three minutes is the time that is allotted to an individual to testify in front of a committee. So when you talk about driving to Boston, not taking two or two and a half hours to park and go as you're going, talking for three minutes, or testifying for three minutes, reading your statement, and then driving back for another two and a half hours, what takes people 20 minutes in Boston to get to takes us five hours, and therefore is really, it's, it's, it's discrimination against Western Massachusetts, which the legislature didn't think about for the first how to put this few hundred yeah, years. Yeah, it took a pandemic. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I, I'm thrilled that we've held on to this remote access for for committee hearings. So today, um, the first bill I have being heard, it's in one of my committees, healthcare financing, and it's about addressing. So you got to help me, Bill, from being too wonky. Uh, don't let me get too wonky. Uh, Representative you, Pat Duffy, stop being wonky. Tell us what the bill does. <laughs> Are you familiar with uh, the Health Policy Commission? Not much. I know Joe Comerford's deeply involved in it, but I don't know much about yeah. it. So uh, just over 10 years ago, you know, Massachusetts, as we often do, we led the way. We created a Health Policy Commission that is helping us uh, track and deal with the escalating cost of healthcare, but you know, and it's actually a really fantastic commission. But you know what? It's been ten years. There's a couple other states that looked at our model and have actually improved. You know the mechanisms that we put in this commission's hands. So it's time to take a look at that again. So. Um, I've got legislation that I worked with with the fantastic advocacy group um, healthcare for all they're they're really really uh, uh, great smart fantastic people and they inspired me to file this legislation so it it, it basically it gives um, the health policy commission uh, a little more some more teeth a little more uh, discretion in uh, talking to healthcare systems and having them reevaluate the way they're uh, sending costs out into the world. And this needs a bill? This needs legislation? This is, or is this about reducing costs? Yeah. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. It's about giving the Health Policy Commission so they can, um, they set like a benchmark uh, for what health costs should be hitting. And, um, and if a healthcare system goes over that benchmark, they do have the the pow power uh, to call that healthcare system in and, you know, they can even assess penalties, but they they need they need a little more flexibility, a, some more teeth uh, to get that done. Is this a little bit like uh, the Biden administration uh, negotiating costs for Medicare with the large pharma companies, the Massachusetts it's a, it's healthcare, related, yeah. something like that. It's related. It's related. Yeah, it's this. It's the same sort of uh, kind of accountability uh, space for accountability. Like, come in and explain to us how these costs have gotten so high, and if we don't like your answer, 
we do have penalties that we can. And there's a hearing on your bill when and where and how do people attend if at, they wish at, to? It's at, uh, at the, the fantastic uh, legislative web website, malegislature.gov. The, on the very first page, you'll see it says events and you can click on the hearing, watch online. And um, I'll be joining uh, through a through a more like remote uh, committee Zoom link. Now people can testify, but in order to testify, do you have to have signed up beforehand? Yeah, you have to sign. Yep, there's a public notice on all hearings, and you have to sign up beforehand. But you can watch the hearing, and uh, if you know if you've got commentary, you can send in written testimony. And these three bills that you're sponsoring are all having hearings today, and they are all available to us to uh, watch and hear remotely. Exactly. Okay, so the, fir the first bill you're sponsoring has to do with expanding the powers and authority of the Health Care uh, Commission. What are the other two bills that you're sponsoring that are having hearings today? Uh, the other bill I filed with my fantastic colleague, Mary Keith from Worcester. She's the greatest. And uh, we filed this before. So another wonky thing in uh, Massachusetts government is the Division of Capital Asset Management. Okay, listen, uh, Representative Duffy, we have people who are driving their cars while they're listening. Don't put them to sleep with the wonkiness. <laughs> we, if, if uh, state agencies that are helping families in need, if they're going to move their offices, they need to have a public process for that. That's basically what the second bill is about. Okay, that, that's and, and why does that matter? Uh, so, for example, in Worcester, the office that um, uh, uh, gives out benefits like SNAP, et cetera, et cetera, that for families in need, you know, single moms, lots of kids struggling with resources, in Worcester, they moved that office from a central location out to the suburbs, no public transportation. You can just imagine like what a burden that added to families. That sounds like a perfectly horrible idea. And that was all perfectly fine with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to do that. No oversight, no, no public input. <laughs> what? We're going to make sure that there is public input. Yeah. And that's, so. and that's what this bill will do? Yeah, to make sure that there's a, a, a much better, there have to be public hearings, got to take into account public input. And what, what committee is that in front of? That is in front of the Joint Committee on Children and Families. Now, with regard to both of these bills that you just told us about that you're sponsoring, the process will be they need a positive recommendation out of the committee in order to get to the floor of the House for a vote. Tell us a bit about that, if you would, please. Sure. So that, you know, we, uh, the committees, they, they take into account all this testimony. We work with the committees. It's, these hearings are not the only times we work with these committees. And uh, we want a positive report out of the committee. And yeah, and then we want to get it to the floor and have a, a fantastic floor debate in both chambers. What? People in the House of Representatives would actually be opposed to having public input as to where state offices that serve people will be <laughs> and should they go to some place that people can't get to and don't have remote access to and don't have physical access to? I mean, this is going to be controversial, really? Well, there's always, 
well, I don't want to articulate, um, I don't want to speak for state agencies, but, you know, there's always, are you adding too many regulations? Are you putting in too many bureaucratic hurdles? Um, you know, that's not, that's not my position. My position is there should be public hearings. We are speaking with State Representative Pat Duffy. Patricia Duffy is the representative for the 5th Hamden District, otherwise known as the Holyoke District, plus one precinct in Chicopee. We are going to continue our conversation after this break. I want to ask about the third bill that she is the sponsor of, the hearing of which is for which is today. And I want to ask about a bill she is co-sponsoring, an act modernizing firearm laws. We'll be right back. I must go home. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. Mom, tell us about Tom Lake. A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Representative Patricia Duffy. Pat Duffy is the representative for the 5th Hamden District, otherwise or previously known as the Holyoke District, but the district now includes one precinct in Chicopee as well. We were talking before the break about the bills Hearings today, three bills the Representative Duffy is sponsoring, and there are, there's just so much we want to ask you about. But let me, before we get to the third bill today, uh, you are a co-sponsor of a bill titled An Act Modernizing Firearm Laws. Can you tell us a bit about that? I didn't know that there was such a proposal. 
Yeah, I, you know, there's a response. I mean, there's some serious gun violence happening all over the country. And, you know, we're hearing spring, uh, there's shootings in Springfield, in Boston. I will say Massachusetts continues and the Northeast continue to lead the way in uh, we have better gun laws and less gun violence than the rest of the country. But we've got to address there's these new there's new technology with like ghost guns um, and we have very successful red flag laws and it's it's expanding who can um, who can report, you know, I think we better look at like this person's possession of of, of guns. Yeah, and it's a crucial issue because it, there is this overlay of what the Supreme Court is doing and will do this term with regard to the Second Amendment right for individuals to have guns, which, of course, was created by the Supreme Court uh, some years ago. And now there's a push to, of course, expand that Second Amendment right that didn't exist for the first hundred and, I don't know, almost 200, right. 200 plus Sorry, years. I'm making sure I'm like uh, plugged in there. You're, I, you're doing good. My computer was about to <laughs> leave us. Oh, I, I, I thank you. And she's not only is she a state rep, but she's an IT whiz. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Representative Duffy, a bill to expand our knowledge about how to plug in our computers. I think that's essential. <laughs> uh, listen, I really appreciate that information. I want to follow that bill. Buzz, you had some questions about uh, uh, bills that uh, Representative Duffy is involved with during the break. Why don't you bring our listeners into that conversation, please? I do, Representative Pat Duffy. Uh, I wanted to ask about a bill that you are co-sponsoring with uh, First Franklin Representative Natalie Blay and others, I believe, and it involves our aspiration as a commonwealth that by 2050 we'll have net zero in terms of our energy use and and, uh, be uh, not damaging the climate as we continue to do. And in order to uh, find a sustainable funding source to achieve those goals, you and Representative Blay have proposed a bill about equitable funding for climate change adaptation and mitigation. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, and it's, again, sort of following this theme of a lot of my legislation of bringing in uh, community groups and bringing in the public voice to make sure uh, that they're part of this decision making. So, uh, as I was saying, the Mount Tom uh, oil coal plant, the decommissioning of that in Holyoke is the perfect example of how this should work. We knew it was going to be decommissioned. We all applauded that. But who was most affected by that coal plant? Uh, folks in South Holyoke and downtown Holyoke had huge asthma rates. And we know that the coal plant was part of that. So if that's getting decommissioned, those groups need to be part of the decision of what's going to happen with that land and that structure. And uh, we had a great neighbor to neighbor was a huge part of this. We had a great public process. So that needs to be codified. That kind of public process needs to be codified. We, we hear about environmental justice, and it's just an acknowledgement that climate change impacts some of us more than others. And big surprise, Amen. people who live in, in communities that are underfunded and marginalized, those are the ones who get impacted the most. And you and Natalie Blay are trying to do something about that. So so what's the next step? Are there hearings that are going to be held on the bill? That bill has had it, um, had a really great hearing. We had so there was so much great testimony from like the Nature Conservancy, neighbor to neighbor, other really um, fantastic advocacy groups. And so now we're working with um, the committee on Envi- the committee on environment and 
<laughs> and what, natural what resources. Guys? I think it's environment. We and pulled agriculture out of that committee, so now I, I uh, don't have the exact title. But we are working with that committee to move that forward. It's really important. It will, it will probably be a larger um, environmental bill, and what we'll want to do is get it, make it part of that. That is great. The other thing I wanted to ask you about: last month, ground was broken on the new what's going to be called the the veterans home. It was previously called the soldiers home uh, when disaster struck during the pandemic and uh, way too many lives were lost. Um, and now there is a, I think, $400 million um, mm. uh, project to build a new veterans home right there in Holyoke. So uh, what's the status of that? What can you tell us about that? Uh, well, we had the groundbreaking, which was really, uh, it was really meaningful. The whole local delegation was there. Um, and the families of, of those who were lost during the horrific um, COVID outbreak there at the home that was so badly handled. Um, the families were all there and it was really, it was one of the most meaningful public events I've ever been to. The governor was there, the um, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, which is now a cabinet level position. Um, and I some of those families said to me that they had a private meeting with the governor and Congressman Neal right before the ceremony. And so, some of those people said to like, I'm sorry, I'm gonna like get very emotional. They said it was the first time someone looked at them and said, I'm sorry. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, yeah. I have a question for you, Representative Duffy, and you too, Bill Newman. I, I'm truly ignorant. The problem was during this pandemic, congregate housing resulted in just this contagion ripping through residential areas where people lived in close proximity to each other. Uh, and I don't know what's being done with the new design that's going to that, help prevent that from happening again? Well, number one, uh, there's going to be better uh, um, rooming situations. I think I think it's single rooms for everybody, but it's more than just that. Of course, congregate housing was a, a breeding ground for COVID, but it's more than just that. It was badly handled. I mean, that's, that's the unanimous decision. Um, you had someone in there who was had never directed a medical facility like that before. There have been COVID outbreaks in the years since, but they were handled correctly. The um, you know the patients were separated from each other, and that's so. It I, was. I know ventilation is an important part of the solution. Yeah, yeah, but I'm telling you, it was not just the facility. It was the management. When will the new veterans home open? I, sh I should know that, um, but it's not for a couple of years and they've got a whole logistical plan. Like, you know, we'll work on this wing and, and those folks will move over um, and, you know, and then we'll move folks into the new wing and finish the next wing. Um, but pr I, I keep in touch. I keep in touch with folks at the home it's like five minutes from my house, but I also, uh, with our director of Veterans Affairs here in Holyoke, um, Jesus Pereira, who's an incredible advocate. And um, he, you know, like when there was some COVID in the home uh, last summer, I got in touch with him and he was like, oh, everybody, like the families feel like they're being well communicated with and, 
you know, it's being handled. And so the transparency and communication with families is just everything is now much more as it should be. Representative Duffy, let's get back to the third bill that you're sponsoring, primary sponsor for that's having a hearing today. What is it? And again, tell us how we can listen in and participate. Again, MALegislature.gov, and it's in the Joint Committee on Revenue. It's about, again, about um, public structures getting uh, uh, a better mechanism to address the facility needs in public higher ed, uh, on public higher ed facilities. Uh, You know, we've got a pretty good system for K through 12. It's not perfect. Um, but the state has an obligation to invest in the infrastructure on our public higher ed campuses, community colleges, all the way to the UMass system. We're just, we're behind the, we're behind the the ball on all of those, you know, there's a long line of public higher ed structures that need to be updated. And by the time the state gets to them, the, they're just in terrible shape. Right, because the deferred maintenance for the buildings on higher ed campuses is, is, is appalling. The, the backlog and the expense. And this bill will do what? It will create a, a, a building authority like the Massachusetts School Building Authority that we have uh, for K through 12. And that hearing is before uh, which committee today? The Joint Committee on Revenue. And I'm glad about that because the big question, how are we going to pay for it? We have fair share revenue now, so. Fair share of the constitutional amendment that may bring us up to $2 billion focused yep. on needs of transportation and public education. Got it. We've got a $1 billion fund, $500 million for each uh, bucket. One, one bucket being transportation, one bucket being education? Education. And that includes public higher ed. Representative Patricia Duffy, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your insight, your leadership, and your time today. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Always fun. Thank you, Representative. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round, just a wandering worker. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Firefighters were called to the McDuffie School in Granby for a report of a carbon monoxide alarm around 10.30 a.m. Monday following a recent power outage. When crews arrived, they confirmed there was an elevated level of carbon monoxide in the first floor in the central building. The building was vented and cleared for use by noon. Greenfield and state police continue to investigate the cause of death of a Turner's Falls man on Sunday. Police were called to the scene of an unresponsive individual in a car parked on Federal Street near the intersection of Pierce Street and Greenfield shortly after 11 a.m. 30-year-old Dylan Dudick of Turner's Falls was pronounced dead at the scene. Cause of death has not yet been determined. The Amherst School Committee continues to look for candidates interested in serving the district. At a meeting last night between the town council and two of the remaining school committee members, a series of questions was developed that may be asked at a September 26th meeting. The need to appoint new members comes after Ben Harrington, Allison McDonald, and Peter Demling all resigned from the committee due to alleged toxic conditions. Here's Ben Harrington. I think I've given up on Amherst. 
I lost faith in the town in general. It's not just the, the school district, but I, I think the problem is that we've had an issue for quite a long time before I even stepped on to the school committee, and it's cultural. And I think right now it, it, it's going to take drastic action for people to look in the mirror. The committee is also waiting on the results of a Title IX investigation currently underway in regard to the treatment of LGBTQ plus students at the middle school. Morning clouds and fog give way to a partly sunny day. There is a slight chance for a shower today, but most of us stay dry. The high of 76 to 80. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s under mostly cloudy skies. Another round of patchy fog and a low in the 60s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Rain developing. Could be a few thunderstorms as well tomorrow afternoon. A high of 72 to 76. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th. Be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley. Playing the Polka Classics and the latest Polka Hits. There are Polka Hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Talking baseball, Klazuski Campanella. Talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella. The scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey. And this is Talking Baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman, who is a leading light in Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research, and author on many of many articles and books, in which he's edited with regard to baseball and its history, and an expert on the Negro Leagues in baseball. Duke Goldman came into our studio at the beginning of this baseball season and shared with us his predictions. He said, the New York Yankees are going to be in the playoffs. And I said, thank you, Dick. That makes me feel so much better. I can relax and the season will be great. And he also said, and the Los Angeles, uh, no, hang no. on. No, 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 no. 
he said. Uh, the New York who, Mets are going to win the World Series. He did. Yeah, the man's. Con- I was the one who chose the Dodgers. The man is confessing. The man is confessing that. But he did say one thing. He made one prediction that was spot on. Because stink. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. What Duke said is the Boston Red Sox are a 500 team. And here we are today at the end of the season, and the Boston Red Sox are two games over 500. They are starting a four-game series, I believe, with the New York Yankees. Correct. So they certainly could be at exactly 500 by the end of the series in any event. Duke Goldman, you got that right. The Boston Red Sox are a 500 team. As for your predictions on who would be in the playoffs and who would win the World Series, they were terrible. I, I, well, I, 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 one <laughs> prediction was accurate. As which the is song anti- goes, one out of three ain't bad. Oh, no, the song was two out of three ain't bad, Well, <laughs> it, which tells you about predictions. They're not worth anything. Um, you, didn't I, tell, you didn't predict that for us. Hi, these predictions are unpredictable. <laughs> we wouldn't watch it if we knew what was going to happen. And, you know, what I thought of coming into today was, who's a bigger disappointment? I mean, I'm bringing the Mets into the picture. I don't know how many, I, I do run into Mets fans around here. I think they're sort of the third team of the area. That's because Duke talks to everyone. That's how well, he runs that's into That's part it. of it. And, and the, the nice thing about being a Mets fan as opposed to a Yankee fan is if you see somebody wearing a Mets hat, you can say, go Mets. And you know they're a Mets fan. Yankee hat, they could be, you know, from Spain and they just, because the Yankee hat is iconic. Um, so I, I run into a lot of Mets fans. But of course, this is Red Sox Nation. And we do have a lot of, like you, Bill, Yankee fans around. And when you're wearing your Yankee hat, what you find out is that people hate you. Yes. And when you're wearing your Mets hat, yes. that, nah, not so much. That's right. Because, um, you know, even though the Mets and the Red Sox did have a, uh, a famous clash in 1986, they, we have a common enemy. So what I, <laughs> what I thought of was, who's been the biggest disappointment? Because let's face it, they're all disappointing. I mean, the Red Sox are kind of where they were supposed to be, but... Red Sox Nation isn't happy with this. I mean, the Red Sox are a disappointment. The Red Sox are playing the New York Yankees now in September to decide who's going to come in last, last place. Correct. And the Mets are fighting the Washington Nationals to see who's going to come in last. So, who's the biggest disappointment of all three? Who's the biggest disappointment, Duke? Well, I'm going to argue the Red Sox, and you know, although you can make an argument for any one of them. So the argument for the Mets being the most disappointing team is, well, they were the one with the biggest payroll. They came in with Max Scherzer and, and Justin Verlander, two first ballot Hall of Famers on their pitching staff. And you know what? They tanked. To the point that they literally tanked, they traded away all their, you know, their, their great pitchers and almost all of their top players because they were going nowhere and they fell to the bottom. With the highest payroll With in baseball. With the highest payroll in baseball. Okay. Big disappointment. All right. How about the Yankees? Well, Yankees had the second biggest payroll in baseball. The Yankees signed arguably the best or one of the very best players in baseball, the face of their franchise, Aaron Judge, to a nine-year contract. And what's happened to them, Bill? I don't know. I'm having a hard time remembering. <laughs> what happens? What's happened? They've also fallen to the bottom. They're in last place. Uh, the last I checked, they had a 0.1% chance of getting into the playoffs. In other words, if they win their last 20 games, they might make the playoffs. But they're not going to. Right, right now, their their biggest hope is to beat up on the Red Sox, you know, in the next four games, and maybe they'll stay out of last place. And on top of that, the real disappointment of the Yankees is they haven't figured out that their their management team needs to go, and they decided they, since they're the Yankees, they couldn't trade away players, and they got no extra talent, and they are an old team. 
that isn't really set up well to do well in the upcoming years. Yes, they have Aaron Judge. Yes, they have Garrett Cole, who is a great pitcher. And how much else do they have? Not much. Is Brian Cashman not? Why is he still there? Because he is the general manager. He's the general manager. He, you know, has been with the team 30 years. Um, The team has been in the playoffs and above 500 almost consistently over the last 20 plus years. And the owner, Hal Steinbrenner, the son of George, seems to care more about the, the brand and the value of the franchise. And the brand is one of the most potent brands in baseball, even if they don't win. Uh, now, but if they stop winning over the next few years, I'm not so sure how potent that brand will be. Even this year, with the terrible record, the Yankees now being two games under 500, they have drawn more than three million spectators to Yankee Stadium. So that's kind of what's happening. So, but they're all on antidepressants. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Yankee fans don't tolerate losing very well, do they, Bill? I'm going to speak to this personally, but uh, <laughs> at next uh, the show that we'll do next spring training where Duke will once again predict the Yankees will be in the playoffs. We'll find out about that. But I don't let's know go about back. that. Let's, but go, let's, let's go to the Red Sox. Let's go back to the Red Sox are the most disappointing team. That kind of made me feel well. Okay, here's my argument. Okay. In some ways, the Red Sox have done pretty well this year. You know, they signed Yoshida, and he's had a good year. Justin Turner's had a good year. Tristan Cassis, uh, rookie first baseman, has had really, uh, especially the second half of the year, has done really well. So why are they so disappointing? Because the Red Sox had a player, the face of the franchise, who they traded for not very much. And everybody knows who I'm talking about, right? Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts, I had an argument at my Negro Leagues conference with a descendant of one of the Negro League greats where I was saying Mookie is an all-time great. And he was saying, nah, he's pretty good, but nowhere near that good. Yes, he is. Mookie is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, without a doubt. He is a five-tool player. He does everything on the field. Five tools? He throws, he fields, he hits, he hits with power, and he runs. And he does them all well. He doesn't steal a lot of bases anymore, but, you know, he plays the infield. He plays the outfield. He does everything. He has 39 homers and 103 RBIs, runs batted in, from the leadoff spot. That's how good he is. And that's and he's so smart on the field. He yes. anticipates what's going to be happening so well. And the Red Sox didn't re-sign him. Now, now, I just want to ask you, Freddie Freeman is a great player who plays alongside him, and they protect each other. It's Correct. Play. I mean, does that in any way diminish your enthusiasm about Mookie? No. This is Dan. Uh, I heard the argument uh, about Mookie was he wanted too much money. They weren't willing to give him that. They also had to sign Rafael Devers, who's another big star there. With you know, Then they decided Rafael Devers to sign him because he's younger and they can maybe get more years out of him. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, Devers wasn't signed until four years later. So, you know, he was just starting with the team at that point, and they made a choice not to invest in Mookie when Mookie still had a year left. The Yankees had Aaron Judge in his last year, and they kept him. The Red Sox decided, we're going to go out and trade him when we can get something for him. And by the way, they didn't get that much for him. Well, isn't that their new model uh, for their GM is not to do these big signings, right? Is to find these small talents. Like, that's what I've understood. Yeah, but you know. But like, isn't that why they hired uh, That is true, why they hired Chaim Bloom. But that, again, was after the decision on Mookie. And the ownership decided not to take a risk with him. And they should have realized he is or was 
the the for me, I stopped watching. I used to switch back and forth between pitches between Red Sox and Mets games. Yes, the Mets are my first team, but I love watching the Red Sox. And first, it was because of Big Poppy. I wanted to see every one of his at bats. But when he retired, I wanted to see Mookie. Mookie had an at bat that I think all Red Sox fans remember: seventeen pitches where he battled and battled and battled and ended up hitting a home run. The eye test told you what a great player Mookie was, and then the stats tell you that too. He is an all-time great. And the Red Sox should have taken the risk and did done everything they could to re-sign him. That's what I believe. So it was too much money? I mean, why didn't they do it, you think? I think they were doubtful that he wanted to stay. I think they were trying to cut back on their payroll. I think they didn't want to take the risk of getting nothing for him. And I think they made a mistake. Maybe they did see down the road. We have other players we have right. to invest in. That's what I'm going to assume. But, you know, you go all in for the player that, that, that is the magnetic pull. And that's who that player was and is. And now he's that player for the Dodgers. And he's going to be that player for the Dodgers for five, six more years to come. And he's never going to be that player for the Red Sox. And, you know, Rafi Devers, great player, does the same thing every year. Not a year. great third baseman. Not a great third baseman. Hits you 30 home runs. Very good. Does anybody tune in to say, I want to see what Rafi Devers did today? I don't think so. Does anybody tune in to see what Mookie Betts has to do, what Aaron Judge has to do? With the Mets, people tune in to see what Pete Alonso will do. If the Mets don't re-sign Pete Alonso, who is in the same position Mookie Betts was in with one year to go and trade him, I would say the Mets are making the same mistake. You've got to keep the face of your franchise. We're speaking with Duke Goldman. He is the leading light, Northampton-based of Sabre, Society of American Baseball Research, Research, baseball historian. Duke Goldman knows more about baseball, I think, than anyone else I know, except for maybe one other person in Sabre who is a dear friend of his. When we come back, we're going to find out more about why baseball teams, why other sports teams for that matter, need a face of the franchise and whether or not the Red Sox were willing to sign an African-American player, Mookie Betts, to be the face of their franchise. We'll be right back. Who'd have believed you'd come along Hand Touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. 
Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than an online video and some questionable reviews to know what it actually feels like? At Talon Furniture, we mostly sell therapeutic mattresses, not Tempur-Pedic. Don't want to mislead you. Therapeutic. Made in Brockton by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Therapeutic mattresses are clean, no toxic off-gassing. Come to Talon and lay down on a Therapeutic. See what it feels like. You can have all the time you need. And we don't roll it up like a burrito, stuff it in a box, and cram it in your car. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. We actually deliver your new mattress and set it up. Talon Furniture, a real store just down the hill from Amherst College. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Duke Goldman. This is Talking Baseball with the Duke, and we ended the last segment with the question about racism and the Red Sox and whether or not, I raised the issue with you, the Red Sox were willing to have Mookie Betts be the face of the franchise, to which I think the answer might be yes, because after all, Big Poppy was the face of the franchise. I, I wouldn't say in any way that the Red Sox ownership is racist or they didn't sign Mookie because he was African-American. Without a doubt, that's not what happened. On the other hand, would they have recognized that Boston still is in many ways, in my view, a racist city. I've been in the ballpark when people yelled out racist epithets at Adam Jones, who was an outfielder for the Orioles, when uh, when there was a big fight on the field and Big Poppy charged the mound. And, you know, as an African-American, I think Mookie Betts would have been a really good icon for the Red Sox to build around. Now, we discussed all the other reasons that they may not have signed him, but I think they should have gone all in on him. And speaking of African-Americans and black history, I found out this week that my baseball society, the Jerry Malloy Negro League Conference that I'm a part organizing, that this year was in Detroit. Next year, it's going to be in Cooperstown, and it's going to be there June 6th to 9th, about a week after the new baseball exhibit on black baseball is opening and Cooperstown is redoing all of their black history to infuse black baseball into all aspects of the museum. And this is commendable. But you've been very critical of baseball and this assimilation into baseball statistics and history, the way in which Major League Baseball has done that for the Negro Leagues recently. Correct. So I think what they need to do is go further, and they need to recognize that there are more African-American greats from the Negro Leagues who deserve consideration, probably in a special committee. And I'm going to be one of the people that tries to put Cooperstown's feet to the fire and say, you know, you need to do more. It's not enough to celebrate the past. We have to also recognize it. Well, tell us more about that, because baseball has, I think baseball would say, we've done a lot to try to make amends for the way in which uh, uh, baseball players of color were discriminated against, excluded, not allowed in the major leagues, and don't don't we baseball deserve some uh, credit for trying to make those amends? I, I'm all fine with the credit. I just don't think it's enough, and I don't think they've recognized and and acknowledged enough the racism of the past. It's not just about elevating the players they want to see elevated. It's about looking. For further and seeing that there are other phenomenal players who've not gotten their their due and also 
calling out the people of the past, like Judge Landis, the commissioner of baseball, who in essence led the charge to keep baseball segregated, acknowledging publicly the stain that he put on the game is something that I believe Cooperstown as an institution should do. They've taken steps in that direction, but what they don't do is change their plaques to acknowledge these faults, the plaques that are on the wall, because Judge Landis was uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. Well, you have talked to us before that back in December of 2020, the major leagues acknowledged that the seven Negro Leagues were in fact major leagues, that the quality of play was equal to major leagues. Didn't that wasn't that it a was step a in the, step in the right direction. I'm now on a committee that is going to present evidence that there are more Negro Leagues that need to be considered, that they shouldn't have stopped at the end of the Negro National League, which stopped in 1948 when the Negro American League continued through 1960. And we're not going to argue that uh, all the way to the end of the Negro Leagues, that that should be considered major league. But perhaps that 1949 and 1950 should also be considered. There are other aspects of Negro League Baseball that need recognition. By the way, I don't say that Negro League Baseball was 100% equal to the white Major League Baseball. The stars were definitely as good. There was some lack of depth, understandably, because they were drawing from a smaller segment of the population, but they were also playing under tremendous handicaps and uh, facing endemic racism throughout the country as they traveled, and they were stars, and they were great, and there were many more of them that have not gotten sufficient consideration. Bill, should we still be calling them Negro Leagues? I don't know. What do you say, Duke Oven? Yes, because that's what they were called then. To call them something else would be to change history in a way that I don't think is appropriate. We, we wouldn't call them anything of black baseball today, Negro Leagues, because that term is outmoded. But the leagues are known and will always be known as the Negro Leagues. And my conference is known as the Jerry Malloy Negro League Conference. Let's return, if you don't mind, to the pennant races that are, well, present and, well, pre- pretty darn exciting. So with with that, tell us, I don't know how to say this, to give us your predictions. Well, the Atlanta Braves are clearly the best team in baseball. They have a lineup that is ungodly. They have potentially five 30 homer hitters and maybe even as many as eight or even possibly nine 20 homer hitters in their lineup. Uh, they are currently given by some of the prognosticators, fan graphs, I think, gave them a 30% chance of winning the World Series, which when you're one of, of uh, 10 teams in the playoffs, you know, that's, that's pretty good. Um, who else is a serious contender? You got to think the Astros are because, you know, they've been there. They, 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 they're veterans. They're tested. I think the dark horse candidate is the Orioles, who had an interest, incredible year. Interesting. Houston Astros, who knocked off the New York Yankees and kept them from winning for many years, just lost a three-game series. They were swept by the Yankees, the 2023 Yankees. Because unlike football and baseball, when a bad team plays a good team, you still never know what's going to happen on a given day or even in a given series. But it, and that's partly why the World Series is a bit of a crapshoot, because you know, in seven games, a mediocre team can beat a better team. 
The best team in baseball is usually the one who won the most games. I would say, without a doubt, Atlanta Braves are the best team in baseball this year. That doesn't mean they are in any way a guarantee to win the World Series. Because it's not the best team in baseball that wins the World Series. It's the best team in October. It's the hottest team. And also the team that gets the breaks, because baseball is a game of inches, and somebody can hit a shot that goes foul at the last minute uh, that could have been a grand slam that could turn around the series. Are you dissing the Dodgers? Yes. Sorry. The okay, Dodgers well, but, lost Julio Arias because of a domestic violence charge, and that's going to hurt them greatly. They're, they're lacking depth. Uh, Kershaw ha- has some arm issues. I, I just don't think they have the depth. But, you know, we'll see. They have to play it on the field. Let's, let's hear about an uh, encouraging story. The Baltimore Orioles, small market, low-budget team, they could win it all. They could. They, they're going to win over 100 games. They're probably going to win their division, um, and they've been terrible for years. They rebuilt the smart way. They went out there and drafted and built up some incredible young players. Gunnar Henderson is phenomenal. Uh, they are great, and they are exciting to watch. We leave it there. We've been talking baseball with the Duke. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP North MP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. A few years ago, pre-COVID, I was at an event at the Red Barn on the Hampshire College campus. It was a celebration of tapestry health and a recommitment to the fight for reproductive rights. And the keynote speaker at that event was Loretta Ross. And she gave a talk that left us inspired, fired up, sad, encouraged. It was an amazing talk. Loretta Ross is now a professor at Smith College in the program for the study of women and gender. She teaches a course on white supremacy, human rights, and calling in the calling out culture. And I wanted to share that experience at Hampshire College with you because you will have the opportunity to hear Loretta Ross tomorrow evening, Wednesday at 7 o'clock at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley, 7 o'clock tomorrow night at the Broads, I'm sorry, at the Odyssey in South Hadley. 
because she is a contributor to a new book, Women Who Change the World, Stories for the Fight for Social Justice. Loretta Ross, thank you so much for being with us. Tell us a bit about this book, please. Well, thank you for having me on your show. The book was put together by City Light Books, and it was intended to show how you don't have to be anybody special to change the world. And I was flattered to be asked to contribute to the book, largely because I think I was one of 12 black women who created the concept of reproductive justice, which has certainly transformed the debate on reproductive politics in the United States and even transnationally. So it's a book of our journeys, how we got to offering those contributions to society. And I was astonished with my co-authors, how we all started from very humble, unassuming places with no intentions of changing the world, and I think that's a bit of an overstatement anyway, but the way that we used our lives as intellectual biographies to talk about what impact we have and hopefully what legacies we'll leave. You are a fighter, have been a fighter, a warrior for reproductive rights and for women's rights for a long time. I'd appreciate it if you would share a bit of your journey with our listeners. Yes, and it's all in the book. I think we were frank to a fault, at least I was. I was just a regular kid. Mom was a housewife. Dad was a military guy. But unfortunately, I suffered childhood sexual abuse when a cousin who was supposed to be babysitting me thought it was a better idea to get me drunk so that he could have sex with me. And I was 14 at the time and ended up having that baby, because this was back in 1968 when abortion was not available, legally at least, in the United States. And so because I decided to keep my son, I ended up co-parenting with my rapist. And as you can imagine, that is not the way anyone wants to become a mother, but it certainly had an impact on my consciousness, my awareness of what we now call childhood sexual abuse, the work that I went on to do. I became the director, the third director of the D.C. Rape Crisis Center, which was the first one in the country. So I was on the ground floor of the movement to end violence against women, which has evolved into the Me Too movement. And so it's one of those stories where something that only takes a few seconds can actually transform the rest of your life. And that's the story that I tried to tell in Women Who Changed the World. So you were chosen one of a dozen women to contribute to this book, Women Who Changed the World, Stories from the Fight for Social Justice. I would appreciate if you would continue on with that story and tell us what are some of the fights that you have been engaged in? Well, they started in high school because when I had my baby, my high school in San Antonio, Texas, didn't want to readmit me because they said that they did not want someone who had been pregnant and had proof of that pregnancy to come back to school. I remember my counselor saying, well, if we let you in, Loretta, other girls might get pregnant. And I'm like, uh... I haven't even taken biology yet, and I know that ain't possible. <laughs> I mean, so my parents had to sue the 
San Antonio Independent School System for my right to return to school. And then once I did, it was like I was radioactive. Even though I was a black kid, I was an honors kid. I had started the girls' drill team. I was in the science club because I was going to college to major in chemistry and physics. It didn't matter. It really didn't matter in how the uh, predominantly white school treated me, how the mean girls at school shunned me, and I couldn't wait to graduate. So I graduated at 16, and I actually had a scholarship to Radcliffe College at the time, which they rescinded once my high school counselor wrote them and told them I'd had a baby. So I ended up accepting another scholarship offer I'd gotten to Howard University, went there at 16, got tear gassed in my first demonstration because we were protesting police brutality. That was 1970. And then my activist career uneasily combined with trying to become a college student as a single mother. I ended up dropping out of college after three years because it just got to be too much to parent and all of the things that seemed to be so insurmountable at the time. And so I didn't graduate from college until I was 55. I went back and finally at 48 got my undergraduate degree, and I, no one's more surprised than me that I'm a tenure professor at Smith College now because I didn't think that was going to be possible given the struggles that I had to go through. And probably another significant turning point was when I was living in Washington, D.C. with my son in Adams Morgan. That was the beginning of the massive gentrification of Washington, D.C. And so I joined a tenants uh, rights organization that successfully fought for D.C.'s first rent control bill in 1974. And... Um, I realized that activism was the art of making my life matter. And so that's been my path forever since then. Um, I, I, I wanted to uh, ask you, Loretta Ross, um, in this book, Women Who Changed the World, Stories from the, fight, uh, from the Fight for Social Justice and your incredible contributions, uh, which you've just been articulating, where are we at now? Now that... Roe has been reversed, and we just see so many examples of society moving in what I think is the wrong direction. I suspect from your words, you think is the wrong direction. Are you hopeful, or are you demoralized by what's happening these days? Oh, I am totally hopeful and optimistic. I used to regret that I was too young to have done the civil rights sit-ins of the 50s and the early 60s. I wasn't in on the beginning of now and the women's movement in 1966. So I always thought that all the good stuff happened before I was conscious, even before <laughs> I was born. And now I realize this is our lunch counter moment. You don't have to ask what would I have done back then because you can answer that question is what I'm going to do now to be part of that eternal chain of freedom. And I really, really appreciate how young people are responding to this moment because in the 2020 election, every white demographic voted for Trump except one. The 18 to 29-year-olds, 
62% of them voted for Biden. And that's never happened in the history of the United States, that a slice of the white demographic didn't vote for the candidate that best represented white supremacy. So the way I put it is that we got them, we got the young white people with our music, we got them with our cool, and now we got them at the ballot box. (laughs) I am feeling so good about all of that. Loretta Ross, in, in the book, Women Who Changed the World, Stories from the Fight for Social Justice, to which and for which you are a contributor, at the beginning there's this blurb, and I want to read these two sentences and ask you to comment. It says, the life stories of these inspiring women reveal the many ways the experience of injustice can catalyze resistance and a commitment to making change. They demonstrate how the relationships and bonds of collective struggle for the common good not only win justice, but create hope, love, and joy. After all of these years and all of these battles and the uh, present state of the country, I would like to know, how do you maintain that kind of spirit? Where does that resilience come from? I think I owe a great debt to my parents who were not political at all. My father, as I said, was a military veteran, a member of the National Rifle Association, an American Legion, and his VFW. Mom was a Southern Evangelical Christian, but taught me the values of community service and working hard and giving and upholding family and all those good values. I mean, one way I'd put it is that my mom and dad would feed the hungry. And I was just, as a human rights activist, asked why they were hungry in the first place. (laughs) So I have to salute the grounding that they gave me. But I've also been privileged to have a lot of mentors who didn't give up on me when I was at my most insufferable self. I mean, when you're young, you think you know everything and that you, you know, the older people don't understand. And when I was at my most obnoxious, I was making mistake after mistake after mistake. People didn't give up on me. They didn't dispose of me. They didn't call me out to dispose of me. And so that also is something that I want to pass on as part of of my understanding of how you do social change work for the long haul so that you just don't parachute in and get burnt out and give in to cynicism and despair and then end up becoming a movement tourist. I want to teach people how... I say this all the time, fighting Nazis should be fun. It's being a Nazi that sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's quite some summary. Uh, (laughs) We are speaking with Loretta Ross, who is a contributor to the new book, Women Who Changed the World, Stories from the Fight for Social Justice. She will be at the Odyssey Bookshop tomorrow evening, Wednesday for a book reading, signing, and discussion as well. You can sign up for this event. Please do at Odyssey Books. Just go to, to the website, and you can sign up for this event and have a discussion with Loretta Ross tomorrow evening. We're going to continue our conversation with Professor Loretta Ross right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Hashtag you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Oh, how great it would feel to have your 20-year-old knees, shoulders, hips, and back. You know, you don't think about your pains when you're in your 20s or 30s, but you wish you could get that body back when you're in your 60s. I think QC did that for me. For Patrick, it started with a simple phone call to QC Kinetics. One day I was driving and I just heard the radio and I pulled over and took the number and I called them when I got home. Maybe that's you and you're listening right now. Why wait? QC Kinetics Regenerative Treatments uses your body's own natural biologics to heal and restore damaged tissue without invasive surgery or harmful drugs. And as for the results... My knees are as good as they were when I was in my 20s. I'm really happy with what happened. For Patrick, it's like QC Kinetics turned back the clock. Now it's your turn. Call QC Kinetics today for your complimentary consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links. Save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with longtime political activist Loretta Ross, who will be at the Odyssey Bookshop tomorrow evening. She's a contributor to the book Women Who Changed the World, Stories from the Fight for Social Justice. You have been a longtime political activist, a fighter for reproductive rights, a fighter against white supremacy. You teach a course at Smith where you're a professor titled White Supremacy, Human Rights, and Calling in the Calling Out Culture. I'm wondering if you would tell us a bit more about the title of that course and what it means to call in the calling out culture. Well, when I was first asked to teach at Hampshire College, they did an open slate. I could teach anything I wanted to teach. And I thought about reproductive justice briefly, but then ex-President Trump came down that escalator, and I thought that, okay, in the 1990s, I spent all of my time fighting the white supremacist movement, and I'm dealing with a population, a country that doesn't understand what that pretends when he became the avatar of the white supremacist movement in the White House, and so I decided to teach about white supremacy in the age of Trump. But because I also care about reproductive politics and how we treat each other in the human rights movement as part of the resistance, I just folded those topics all together and made that my signature class. And so that's what I teach at Smith College now after stints at other colleges, Harvard and other places. And so... Calling in is my favorite topic right now because I believe that 
too much of our time in fighting the neo-fascist movement is spent on fighting each other. Uh, the one way that I put it is that the left spends a lot of time talking about intersectionality, but the right wing spends a lot of time organizing intersectionally. So they fight against abortion rights, against gay rights, against the freedom to learn, and all the things that we are fighting individually in silos. We need to figure out how to pull together in a fight for undivided human rights. But we can't do that when we're spending all of our time bitterly criticizing each other for not doing the human rights work perfectly, for not being able to forgive each other for the inevitable mistakes that we make. We really don't have strong training on how to be together without putting a lot of pressure on each other to march in line and totally agree with each other. I tend to think that we most surrounded by what I call either proven allies, potential allies, or problematic allies. But the most important word in those three phrases is they're all allies. So if you see somebody putting up a Black Lives Matter sign, instead of calling them performative or saying that they're saviors, why not appreciate that they're on your side? Because the Ku Klux Klan has never flown a Black Lives Matter sign. A homophobe has never put up a rainbow flag. And so it's, a, it's incumbent upon us to figure out how to be strategically smart in building the power to end the human rights violations that we are suffering through. But right now we're spending our best bullets on each other, cannibalizing each other, destroying our social justice organizations around the politics of self-absorption, and I'm tired of it. So that's what I teach. Instead of us using crappy skills to build crappy movements, I'd rather teach the lessons that I've learned over 50 years and how we can turn to each other instead of on each other. I have two questions for you about teaching. One is uh, that you are teaching uh, Andrea Vazian, who is the uh, founder of the Truth School for Social Justice, when she was on the show, she mentioned that you will be teaching a course for the Truth School. Want to tell us about that? Yeah. On October 10th at 5.30 online, I will be teaching Calling in the Calling Out Culture. And I'll be talking about the theory of why we should call in. I'll be offering techniques for how you call somebody in across differences, how you learn tactics of forgiveness, and self-forgiveness, which is really important, and beat back that whole specter of pursuing perfectionism and those kinds of things. And it's a free course that the uh, Sojourner Truth School offers. So that's October 10th at 5.30. But I also teach in a more protracted way online. I offer a lecture series on calling in, and it begins in the middle of October. I think it's October 17th. And it's for $5 a class, as I call myself, the Walmart of consciousness raising, and people can register <laughs> for that uh, on my website, LorettaJRoss.com. And the entire class is only $20 because it's four lectures, four two-hour lecture series accompanied by uh, four two-hour practice sessions we call learning labs. So you get 
you know, what that's 18, 16 hours or so of learning the techniques and the theories of calling in. And that's, again, it's on my website. Professor Ross, many of the authors who are on this show tell us about how the art of writing, the experience of writing, actually is in and of itself a learning experience. There's something about committing to those words on paper. And I'm wondering whether or not, um, for you, writing your contribution to the book, Women Who Changed the World, Stories from the Fight for Social Justice, whether there was something in that experience of writing your piece that taught you something or brought to your mind something that you hadn't either realized or fully appreciated before, or not? Whenever you write a, an essay that's like an intellectual biography, and you offer that to the world, it's like walking down the street naked and inviting people to take pot shots at your body and how it looks. And so you have to learn to let it go, that everybody's not going to like what you say, and the ones who most dislike it will be the most vocal in criticizing it. But that's okay, because it's an offering you make where you don't try to take responsibility for how it's received, how it's accepted, because you have no control over that. People will see what you offer through the lens of what they've been through, not the lens of what you've been through. And so it's a very scary prospect, but it's one that I can't avoid. I mean, I don't know how earthy I can be on your show, but... Uh, not, I, not that earthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, 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 I'll put my toe in the water. Writing is like the fart I can't keep in. <laughs> I got to let it go, let it go, and deal with the consequences of it. That, that's what writers are. We, writers write. We have no choice, just like painters paint and singers sing. And so it has all of those fears and risk. And there are times when I was writing that I had to make a special appointment with my therapist to heal from the things that I was self-disclosing voluntarily on paper. But this is the joy of having the voice I have. I, I always tell people, and particularly my students, I never take my courage for granted because I get to say things today that would have gotten my parents lynched. So, of course, I'm going to always use that privilege. Loretta Ross, I want to ask you one more question before we let you go, um, and it is about your voice and the voice that you have. And I'm wondering whether or not y you feel it important or not to use that voice for the reparation struggle and the reparations movement that's going on and is taking root both in locally, Amherst and Northampton, and nationally. And I'd appreciate your thoughts on that. Well, first a disclaimer, I'm not that familiar with the reparations movement. I've never studied it or anything, but I did attend the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa in 2001 and landed in the United States the morning of 9-11. And what I saw in Durban was that people of African descent from all over the world, but particularly from Latin America, 
they were scientific in their demands for reparations. They had researched which corporations had benefited from it, what companies, what educational institutions. I mean, they came with binders of data and information. And I, I was a little embarrassed by the fact that those of us in the United States are so far behind what Africans in other countries are researching, documenting, and, and fighting for. So I want us to catch up to them and make sure that we produce the most fact-filled case for reparations and then have a strong analysis for how we can pursue them and lessen the resistance to pursuing them and achieving them. Because if we try to do it through white guilt, all we're going to do is create white fear and resentment. But if we do it through another lens of joy, love, and healing, I think that we'll be far more successful and bring in the people that we didn't even think we needed into supporting our struggle. Smith College Professor Loretta Ross will be at the Odyssey Bookshop tomorrow evening, Wednesday, September 13th at 7 o'clock. She's a contributor to Women Who Change the World, which she is one of stories from the fight for social justice at 7 o'clock tomorrow evening at the Odyssey. Thank you so much, very much, very much, Professor Ross. We really appreciate your time, your insight, and your leadership in the struggle for social justice and reproductive rights. It's been an honor and a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the pressure. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Firefighters were called to the McDuffie School in Granby for a report of a carbon monoxide alarm around 10.30 a.m. Monday following a recent power outage. When crews arrived, they confirmed there was an elevated level of carbon monoxide in the first floor in the central building. The building was vented and cleared for use by noon. Greenfield and state police continued to investigate the cause of death of a Turner's Falls man on Sunday. Police were called to the scene of an unresponsive individual in a car parked on Federal Street near the intersection of Pierce Street and Greenfield shortly after 11 a.m. 30-year-old Dylan Dudick of Turner's Falls was pronounced dead at the scene. Cause of death has not yet been determined. The Amherst School Committee continues to look for candidates interested in serving the district. At a meeting last night between the town council and two of the remaining school committee members, a series of questions was developed that may be asked at a September 26th meeting. The need to appoint new members comes after Ben Harrington, Allison McDonald, and Peter Demling all resigned from the committee due to alleged toxic conditions. Here's Ben Harrington. I think I've given up on Amherst. I lost faith in the town in general. It's not just the, the school district, but I, I think the problem is that we've had an issue for quite a long time before I even stepped on to the school committee, and it's cultural and I think right now it, it, it's going to take drastic action for people to look in the mirror. The committee is also waiting on the results of a Title IX investigation currently underway in regard to the treatment of LGBTQ plus students at the middle school. Morning clouds and fog give way to a partly sunny day. There is a slight chance for a shower today, but most of us stay dry. The high of 76 to 80. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s under mostly cloudy skies. Another round of patchy fog and a low in the 60s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Rain developing. Could be a few thunderstorms as well tomorrow afternoon. A high of 72 to 76. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center. You tried the call center. And we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are back. There is um, an award that is being given by the Children's Trust, which uh, we're going to talk with Stacy Nee from the Children's Trust about. Stacy, uh, hello to you. Good morning. And so tell us, first of all, what is the Children's Trust? Sure. The Children's Trust is a private public organization with a mission to end child abuse in Massachusetts. And where are you located? Uh, we are located in Boston. Our headquarters is in Boston, but we have programs in every town and city across the state. Now, we have heard about this um, Governor Paul Salucci Fatherhood Award. Could you tell us about it generally? How did it originate? What's it intended mm-hmm. to do and to recognize? And who are you going to be giving it out to uh, most recently? Sure. So the Governor Salucci Fatherhood Award has been given out to uh, five individuals in total, I believe now. Uh, And it really recognizes and well, it reflects on the governor's um, commitment to fathers and elevating the importance of dads and the lives of their children. And we award it to folks that are living that out in their day to day work or volunteers. And, and so this, go, oops, ahead. go ahead. No, no, no. I was, gonna, I was just going to add that this year we are thrilled to be giving the award to Sheriff Patrick Cahillane, 
um, who has been partnering with the Children's Trust for a number of years now and been an instrumental partner for us in bringing the Nurturing Fathers Program uh, to Hampshire County House of Corrections and then expanding it into the local community. So his commitment there has been tremendous and allowed for um, a lot of great work to be done with dads and families, and we're just thrilled to honor him for that. And is this the only uh, Children's Trust Award, the uh, Salucci Fatherhood Award, that's going to be given out in the Commonwealth this year? Is he the one it recipient? Is. That's right. That's right. He's the one recipient, and we're going to be giving it out at our annual gala on October 5th at the Omni Hotel in Boston. That just sounds fantastic. Well, the honoree himself is right here in the studio with us, Sheriff Pat K. Elaine. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. I That's appreciate quite, the Children's Trust, too. Quite an award. So um, we just heard from Stacey Nee that um, your Nurturing Fathers program was what resulted in this recognition that you're getting. What is the Nurturing Fathers program? The Nurturing Fathers program, and I can't say that it's my program. It's it's the staff's program. Um, we, we started this program working with Children's Trust uh, to develop skill sets for fathers who needed some work on their skill sets as far as how they work with their children. And, and we started the program inside the House of Correction um, approximately eight years ago now. And uh, over time, we realized that, uh, and myself included, uh, I, I could have used a skill set uh, when I was a young father and, and first getting to know how to, how to work with your children, especially as they start to develop their own mindset. And that happens early on as well. Oh, not me. I was absolutely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, uh, so in discussion with uh, members of uh, Children's Trust, we, we said, oh, let's see what we can do on the outside. And so uh, we've had wonderful staff interaction with uh, Children's Trust. So uh, we developed this outside program. It's a 13-week program. Um, it engages uh, fathers in discussing their own history as a child, and it, and you have to examine your uh, inner childhood experiences and how they affect how you how you deal with things as a father. Um, and everybody's experiences are obviously different. So uh, so we've uh, uh, we're developing, uh, and we continue to develop the program as it goes. So. Sheriff, I'd like to know this incarceration. One of the hardest aspects of incarceration is separation from family, from community, from loved ones, from children. And I'm wondering if there was something that you noticed or observed or came to your consciousness about how difficult that was for the men at the Hampshire County Jails to parent while they were in your custody. I'd appreciate your reflections on that. Uh, the reflections are probably long-term because I've been around so long in the system. Uh, I realized that early on that a lot of parents and grandparents were bringing their children to the facility to visit with their fathers for approximately an hour at a time. And um, and those interactions always didn't go well. So uh, so as, as time went on and, and we started to uh, engage, especially with nurturing fathers, uh, that it was beneficial to have private time where they could communicate directly with their child and learn skill sets to uh, to get 
to be it's it's about being a better parent it's about a being a loving parent uh and caring about the child and so so those pieces um we we know from our own experiences as children and as growing up in this society that it's difficult to uh, to be a parent and it's it's difficult to uh work through all of the dynamics that uh as children grow and how they develop uh how we how we care for them and how we how we show them love and respect and and kindness um and if we don't pass that on the next generation become victims as well and they become victims of, of uh whether it be the the criminal justice system uh, and end up being the next level of incarcerated people, and so to to avoid some of that, we 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 look at options uh, to protect the the next generation and to develop good human beings, and that that's how this develops. Well, Sheriff Kaylane, does that involve when you say you provide time for them to meet with their children? Does that involve a special sp- uh, space to accommodate these visits and? Uh, extra time and extra toys and things like that. There is a special space, uh, obviously, uh, and as you can see from uh, the the piece that I brought in. Uh, once COVID hit, it, that changed a lot of those dynamics, and so uh, we went on the inside programs. We went to uh, a Zoom uh, process, but on the outside, uh, once we started to develop the outside program, we we made sure that um, they had a connection to the community. And so Northampton Recovery Center, uh, we we use their space in two evenings a week. And uh, those individuals that come to uh, the uh, recovery center uh, can develop their own program. And that program includes uh, going bowling with their child or um, having a picnic with their child. And we usually end the the 13-week program with some sort of a graduation ceremony. And, uh, you know, like I said, disclosure, uh, uh, Bill Newman was our first, was our first outside speaker for uh, the graduation for the outside program. And uh, the feedback was very good, by the way. It's a <laughs> good choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was very honored and very moved after yeah. I gave the talk. Um, and a number of the graduates, a number of the men, yeah. got in contact with me and thanked me for what I said, and f- were so appreciative. And it was v- a very moving experience for me. So yeah. I really appreciate yeah. that opportunity, Sheriff. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd like your reflection a bit more on this. You reflect a bit more on this, uh, because I recall uh, that when I, we, my wife and I, brought our daughter home from the hospital, our first daughter, <laughs> and our first thought was, "Oh my God." People are entrusting this life, this little life, to us. Oh, what do we know about this? And it is, of course, that old story of in order to get a driver's license, you have to go through 100 hoops. But to come to, to be a parent, no one asks to see if you're qualified to do anything. And this idea that skills and life skills are crucial to doing that job right and training and education can be really helpful. Well, that's something that we didn't, you know, that doesn't, I think, come into your consciousness really until you become a parent and to parent from inside a jail uh, and to be able to become a parent and effective effective and loving parent when you're released because everyone in the jail just everyone in the house of correction is getting out Um, and that's an enormous undertaking and an enormous consciousness raising for the men who say i need this your thoughts about that when we started the program, uh, we realized that uh, 
people had to engage at at different levels, and and once they start getting into discussions, they also formed uh, real close bonds with the individuals who were in the classes, and uh, so we they had a safe zone where they could talk about their own life experiences as children growing up into adults, and they have to examine what they need to change, what they need to develop better skill sets at. And so all of those things come into play. And it's things that we, we, you're right, we don't learn until we become the parent, and all of a sudden it is, oh, now what do I do, you know? And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough that I had a wife that was much more competent than I was as a, as a parent. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, she was very supportive in, in giving me guidance because I ended up with all daughters. And, uh, you know, that uh, that's challenging in itself. But, uh, you know, and uh, the individuals on the inside talk about co-parenting uh, because not all the situations, especially in today's environment, uh, Many people are not married and they have children together, um, or they may be in a situation uh, where there's a divorce involved. So all of those pieces come into play, and we try to work through some of those pieces through the Nurturing Fathers program. I want to bring back um, Stacy Nee from the Children's Trust. Um, of all the um, parenting um, uh, sort of uh, possibilities to give this prestigious award to, why did you choose the Hampshire County House of Correction, and what is it about the Nurturing Fathers program that uh, enticed you to uh, give this recognition to Sheriff Kay Elaine? I think there are a number of reasons. I mean, the commitment over many years to continue to allow this opportunity for dads and to even grow the program is really just amazing to see. And I think, you know, one of the things is, the commitment to supporting dads, but in a strength-based way, which is something that the Children's Trust um, understands is very important, and we know that the sheriff and his team does as well, right? So we're coming to the dads and to the families exactly where they are um, and helping them think about, you know, oftentimes uh, dads who maybe didn't have a model, a parenting model, or a great parenting model to be able to provide that opportunity to talk about parenting and parenting skills, to learn, and then to practice, that isn't something that every dad has the opportunity to do. And so the commitment and the the commitment to do it in a strength-based way where we're not shaming, where we're, you know, having open, honest, transparent conversations and, and being really supportive of the dads and families makes a really big difference. And we're, again, just really appreciative of um, the commitment from the sheriff and his team in that. How many jails and houses of corrections, and how many of them does, does your organization have programs like the one in the Hampshire County House of Correction? For men uh, as opposed to for women. Right. We we have piloted and tested in a couple of other um, houses of correction, and ultimately we would love to grow this program and work with other houses of correction, but um, this has been our kind of pilot program and the largest program to date. Let's hope it is uh, contagious in that good way. Um, we're talking with Sheriff Patrick K. Elaine of Hampshire County, who will be receiving the Governor Paul Salucci Fatherhood Award in recognition of this wonderful program, this uh, Nurturing Fathers program. 
That recognition is being given by the Children's Trust, and we'll continue our conversation with Stacy Nee and Sheriff Kay Elaine right after this. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Take WHMP and news from the Pioneer Valley with you everywhere. Download the TuneIn Radio app and search for WHMP. It's free, it's easy, and it's wherever you are. WHMP on TuneIn Radio. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are talking to Stacy Nee from the Children's Trust and the Children's Trust uh, having determined that this year's award winning uh, of the Governor Paul Salucci Fatherhood Award, one, one recipient uh, in the entire Commonwealth is Hampshire County Sheriff Patrick K. Lane. Bill, you were uh, talking uh, to the sheriff during the break. Sheriff, I wanted to know how this Nurturing Fathers program began. So would you tell us that story, please? Yes, it's uh, a typical uh, District Attorney Dave Sullivan story. Uh, he approached with, uh, hey, would you consider doing this? And uh, he pitched the idea that uh, this is a great organization, Children's Trust, doing a lot of good things uh, about developing healthy families. So, And this was some eight or nine years ago? Years ago, ago yes. And so once he, once he pitched the idea, he said, yes, let's, let's try this because uh, it's well worth trying with the incarcerated population. And, uh, and David uh, is one of our biggest supporters. He, he, uh, he attends as many of the graduations as possible. And, 
you know, and engages uh, the individuals as well. So, uh, but I think we we both view it from the standpoint that uh, it is so important that uh, this next generation of kids do well. One fascinating part of the history of the Nurturing Fathers program is, for me, is this. We often say, well, this is happening on the outside, outside the razor wire, and can't people inside have some of the advantages of this program? This is a program in this area that began inside the House of Correction and then was brought to the outside, to the community. Tell us about that. Well, we we wanted to have staff develop a skill set that may be different than what they do in a normal counseling situation. Uh, so the staff uh, developed the, the training. They walked through the 13 weeks. Each week is a new module in the book. Uh, the book is uh, called A Nurturing Father's Journal, and it talks about uh, your history, your attitudes, uh, about love, about caring, about how do, you, how do you become the father that you choose to be, which is, has to be the end result of the 13 weeks because each individual has to get up and talk about what what they've learned and and how they are going to develop that skill set uh so it's uh it's one of those things that uh you know the district attorney uh uh and I, and I started to talk a, a lot about these things we've uh, you know had a cup of coffee every now and then and and uh uh he was also very supportive of this idea of moving it to the outside and moving it through the Northampton Recovery Center and uh the staff uh I can't commend the staff enough. Uh, they're the reason why I'm being recognized. Well, uh, let's talk about your being recognized with Stacy Nee. Stacy Nee on October 5th at the Omni Boston Hotel will be the Children's Trust Gala when this award will be uh, bestowed upon Sheriff Kay Elaine and, as he said, on behalf of the staff and the work that has been done at the uh, House of Correction with respect to fostering, responsible, and nurturing fatherhood. So how can people get in touch? Uh, how can they learn more about it? How can they attend this gala? Stacy Nee? We appear to have lost yeah. Stacy Nee. I assume that they could uh, Google the Children's Trust and, and find out more about the event and uh, how to attend uh, the event. It looks like it's Children's Trust MA, Massachusetts.org. One word, Children's Trust MA dot org slash gala and you can find out more about it and you can attend for our local sheriff uh bill last word sheriff last word to you what have you learned what has being involved with the children's trust and the nurturing fathers program how has it changed you i think it's made me a better parent as well because i've i've opened my mind to uh to some of the discussion topics that they've had and it's, it's, it's made me a, a better father, I think, to my three daughters. And I think being a better father makes you a better person. And uh, after all, that's what, uh, what we want with rehabilitation in, in prisons and jails. So thank you so much. Congratulations, Sheriff. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Remember, don't just talk the talk. Let's all walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. 
It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. WHMP North.